the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Now, later in the show, I'll be joined by Donald Slattery, founder and chief executive of Avalon, the successful Dublin-based aircraft leasing company. He recently launched a white paper called Project I, which developed some recommendations to make Ireland into a global startup hub, and he'll be telling me about those recommendations. Uh, but first, as always, we're going to look back at some of the big news stories of the week, and I'm joined in studio by Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times. Peter, you're very welcome. Thanks, Kieran. Uh, we're going to start with Sean Dunn, who's uh, been in court in Connecticut of late uh, in relation to his American bankruptcy. That's right. The case against him and his estranged wife, Gail Killalay, ended yesterday. Uh, what happened was the jurors awarded Dunn's bankruptcy trustee over 18 million euro, uh, finding that Sean Dunn, the former property developer, uh, that he'd fraudulently transferred certain property, cash and other assets mm. to Gail Killalay. Now, I suppose all throughout the trial, he had maintained that this had been done prior to the crash, prior to him uh, be- becoming insolvent. Uh, but, but obviously... Well, but he and Gail Killalay, I think, uh, saying that essentially this money was transferred to her um, to give her financial independence and to provide for their children going forward. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and so one of those things was the transfer of the property Walford, which Dunn bought for over £58 million, uh, and... That was sold subsequently after the crash for fourteen million. Um, so the award includes that that money, mm. uh, and over three million uh, of a cash transfer from Sean Dunn to to Gail Killalee, uh, who, by the way, Gail Killalee was was ordered to pay all of the damages in the case. So not a wonderful outcome for them. However, she did say in a statement last night, uh, she described the verdict as a mixed result, and she said it was substantially less than the one hundred million euro sought by the trustee. It's not clear that that 100 million euro is what was being sought by the trustee. There was evidence given during the... the trustee never actually put a figure on it, exactly. as I understand it. That's and correct. the trustee, it must be said as well, uh, for a bit of balance here, that the uh, bankruptcy trustee said that this money was transferred from Sean Dunn to Gail Killalay to uh, basically put it beyond the means of yeah. creditors. And uh, the tr- trustee is obviously acting on behalf of creditors and trying to recoup as much of this money uh, as possible. Now, this isn't the end uh, of the case. Um, they, they will come back uh, to the judge. Council can make representations to the judge. There might well be an appeal um, by... Uh, Sean Dunn stroke Gail Killalay. Yeah, that's right. And and there is a, uh, a district court action in the US which, which still has to take place. The amount awarded to the trustee could increase as a result of that mm. because that district court judge has yet to rule on matters that weren't put to the jury. So th- this isn't the end by any means. All right, now, sorry, you were writing about yourself in the Irish Times this week. Uh, Fitch, the ratings agency, put out a note on uh, property prices uh, across major cities in Europe. They included Dublin and they found that uh, in their opinion, property prices are probably going to rise by 3% thereabouts uh, this year and next. But they had a, a little warning in there for the high end of the market. That's right. Fitch, uh, as people will be aware, one of the top three credit ratings mm. agencies. And they indicated that in the first 10 months of last year, that more than half of the new homes built were for more than €350,000. Mm. So these aren't affordable or social homes that are coming to the market. Uh, so Fitch... Fitch is suggesting that with all these new bills, they're being targeted at high earners, but because of central bank caps, the 3.5 times earnings rule, uh, people can't access these homes. So they suggested that this part of the market could be uh, in line for a downturn. But as you said, they were very positive on the whole uh, growth of 3%. 
this year and next year in the market as a whole, despite buyers hitting that affordability uh, barrier. Now, elsewhere, if we look to London, which they also spoke, spoke about, the picture was a lot uh, worse. They estimated prices would fall by between 3% and 5% in 2019-2020, with the caveat that if there's a no-deal Brexit, that would lead to significantly larger declines. Uh, And here, we're getting that upside from Brexit. They said that's likely to lead to further growth in house prices, especially if there's a no-deal Brexit, as as more companies flock to here, uh, and therefore there are more houses needed for them. Now, talking about Brexit, a lot of banks have come to Ireland uh, in recent years to um, solve whatever regulatory they, issues they may have when the UK leaves uh, the European Union. And this is having a, a knock-on effect, we're told, for the banking industry with uh, some of these firms poaching staff from Irish banks. And um, those staff uh, cannot be remunerated by way of a bonus and we have pay caps in place. And all of this fed into a letter by the parting governor of the Central Bank of Ireland, Philip Lane. Just before he left for Frankfurt, he dropped a little letter into Pascal Donoghue's uh, letterbox suggesting that we should loosen the reins on the ban, effective ban on bankers' bonuses. Yeah, he warned that these bonuses represent a current and future risk to the st- stability of the sector. He noticed that critical staff are being poached. They're going to tech companies and, as you mentioned, other banks. Uh, as listeners will be aware, Barclays is the, the largest bank in the country by assets now. So there are significant players here now and, and they are moving away. And Look, this hasn't been helped by the move uh, by AIB, former AIB CEO Bernard Byrne to Davey. Um, so, look, the, I suppose the, the the current system, it's worth noting, is such that there's a 500,000 cap in place and variable pay isn't allowed, or, and even if it was, or even if it is, it's subject to an 89% tax rate. Uh, the issue has caused a headache for a plethora of Irish banks, as I mentioned there, AIB, given the issues around retaining staff as the economy, economy moves to, to full employment. So Lane, Philip Lane uh, believes that variable pay could support and incentivise behaviours consistent with positive consumer outcomes. Uh, so it could be structured in such a way that it wasn't to promote risk-taking within the banks that we may have seen previously uh, in the run-up to the financial crash. He, he added that there's no evidence that remuneration restrictions are having a material effect on the effectiveness of remediating those legacy issues in the Irish banks, like non-performing loans and, and things like that. So... It appears as though the government, well, certainly the government have been given this parting shot by Philip Lane. They may well have to act on it soon. Uh, and the Minister uh, for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, is due to consider a report from Corn Ferry on the matter mm. in the uh, not too distant future. There's so, also a political reality at play here. He's part of a minority government. Mm. There is a general election not too far away and mixed results for Fine Gael in the last election. And going to cabinet, a cabinet that includes the likes of uh, independents like Shane Ross, um, with a proposal to lift the cap on remuneration for bankers and to lift the the uh, effective cap on bonuses as well, or prohibition on bonuses, not going to be terribly popular, is it? No, absolutely not. It won't be popular, and it certainly won't be popular with opposition either. Uh, the likes of Sinn Fein, who had this this bill against vulture funds, which didn't progress, but the 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 appetite is not there in the doyle for for, uh, banker bonuses and increased banker pays. It doesn't appear. So this wouldn't be popular, but I suppose Corn Ferry, I would imagine, are likely to come back with a similar recommendation to Philip Lane, uh, that that these staff are going elsewhere. And that will continue to be the case as as more banks come here and, and offer 
greater incentives. Okay, Peter, we'll see how that plays out. We'll uh, certainly keep it near to the ground and see what Pascal Dunhu decides on that front. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be joined in the studio by Donald Slattery, who'll be telling me about Project Eye, his plan to make Ireland into a global startup hub. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Don't forget you can download this podcast for free from iTunes and you'll also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, earlier this year, Donald Slattery, founder and chief executive of Avalon, the successful Dublin-based aircraft leasing company, launched a white paper called Project I, which develops some recommendations to make Ireland into a global startup hub. And I'm delighted to say that Donald joins me in studio now. Donald, you're very welcome. Um, tell us about uh, Project I. What was the inspiration, if you like, for you to launch this white paper? Yeah, well, Kieran, uh, I suppose the, the the original catalyst was last September. Uh, Taoiseach uh, Leo Varadkar had come to open our new office in Dublin. Mm. And uh, he was sort of surrounded there by the whole Avalon tribe. And his speech on the day was all about the importance and relevance of innovation and entrepreneurship to the Irish economy and how failing forward actually was the term that he used and how important that was. And, you know, I completely agreed with him because that's how I've, I've, I've lived my entire life pretty much as an entrepreneur. But it did strike me after he left that nobody really had taken a step back um, with an unbiased perspective, if you like. So no sort of state funding. And to you know, quite simply in plain English, compare and contrast Ireland's startup ecosystem, how we think about that, and compare that with the best in the world. And so what I decided to do was to put a small team of people within Avalon um, over the period of about three months, and we travelled the world um, to, you know, hotspots of innovation and entrepreneurship. So uh, Silicon Valley uh, to Berlin, Uh, right down into Israel and looked at what are the ingredients for success? Um, What makes these different jurisdictions around the world, which are recognized as startup, successful startup ecosystems? And so Project I ultimately then was the conclusion of that primary research. We spoke to a lot of different stakeholders along the way, whether it was venture capitalists, individuals who were starting businesses or had scaled businesses. Uh, We spoke to universities. We uh, spoke to uh, individuals who run these accelerators um, to try and piece it all together. And so we came back to Ireland with all of this information and um, created uh, effectively this report, which looks at it under five buckets, um, which ranges from education, um, culture, if you like, mm-hmm. right through to scaling and exiting businesses. And then quite simply just said, OK, what does best in class look like in the world? And how do we think Ireland compares? What's the gap and how might we fix it? So, just in terms of your initial research, we'll come on to your recommendations in a few minutes, but how does Ireland compare right now, uh, at the minute, against uh, some of those uh, countries you mentioned? I'm just curious, did you go to China? Because China's obviously a hotbed yeah, we, for we, we, innovation. Now, maybe a hotbed for intellectual property theft as well, uh, according to Donald Trump, at least. Uh, but nonetheless, did you, did you suss out China? No, we decided, we decided not to do China because I think uh, to do China properly, 
uh, just given the scale of the country and given the um, the quantum of innovation that's going on, we decided to exclude China from 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 this piece of research. Now, Avalon is actually owned by a Chinese entity, so in due course, we may decide to go and see how how China compares on the innovation side. But but for this particular version, because we wanted to get it done in a reasonable time frame, um, you could spend a year or two trying to figure out in China. But you know, the good news on the Irish side is. We're producing a lot of seriously bright people coming up with great ideas. And we compare very well on a global scale around the classic innovation metric. We are very poor at scaling those businesses into, you know, the term unicorn, the the billion dollar startup. And we are poor at scaling the businesses into public companies that trade on the international stock exchanges. And... That's the disconnect. Why are we pretty good at coming up with ideas? Because we're a pretty bright, insightful nation. It's in our DNA. But we don't seem to be able to correlate that with significant scale and success. And why is that? Is it a a lack of funding here because we're a small country at at the end of the day? Is it a problem with access to funding perhaps? Is it a lack of ambition? Is it the fact that in a lot of cases, let's say bigger tech companies come knocking on the door and say, hey, we, we like your idea, we like your company. Um, we'd like to offer you a, a check to buy you out. Yeah. So the answer to that, uh, Kieran, I think it's actually all of the above. And that's what Project I is about. It's trying to identify the reasons for the disconnect between I have a great idea, but I'm not scaling. But if I was to sort of summarize it in my mind into what's the one net point, I think we have a culture in Ireland where we are lacking global ambition to build scale businesses. And I'll give you an example. When we were in Silicon Valley talking to venture capitalists, they will tell you on a repeat basis that when they're pitched a new idea or a new business, the opening slide is, here is how my idea is going to change the world. When you talk to Irish entrepreneurs in Ireland, they're quite parochial in their thinking and they're less focused in on how can this idea you know, be a structural shift in how the world does A, B or C or D. And I think it's a cultural piece that goes all the way back to our education system from primary school all the way up along. The second big point is the, um, you know, we get very excited if uh, somebody arrives with the, the check for a business that's just pre-scale. And so suddenly the entrepreneur who has bust his or her proverbials, has invested blood, sweat and tears for the last number of years, has mortgaged the house up to the hilt, the whole shebang, has been working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, suddenly sees a payday. In the past, we've taken that easy check. But look who the buyers of the businesses are. They're all other large institutions who can see the idea, see the benefit, and they're going to take that Irish entity and grow it and scale it within their, within their infrastructure, mm. if you like. Now, some people listening to this podcast might say, well, hold on, what about those Stripe guys? Sure, they were on the Late Late Show recently. These are two Limerick lads who uh, went to America, have made it big. Their company is worth $22 uh, billion, etc. They yep. were thinking global. They absolutely were, but you just said it yourself. They didn't operate and set up the business in Ireland. They didn't seek funding in Ireland. These two um, kids, kid, they're relative mm, to yeah. me, but they are unbelievably successful. They figured out very early in the piece that their idea was going to rock the world of payments and they went to Silicon Valley and decided we're going to build and scale the business there. We're going to get access to the funding there. 
But more importantly for those guys, they're going to surround themselves with like-minded individuals. So they leapfrogged the Irish scenario. But saying that, you know, within uh, half a mile of where we're sitting right now, we have the largest cluster outside of the United States of Internet of Things-based companies, you know? So from the Googles, the Facebooks, the PayPals, etc., their large European operations are based literally up the road. And there are thousands of people working in those businesses today. Irish people, uh, non-Irish people, doesn't actually matter what, what jurisdiction they came from, who are all, in my mind, uh, budding entrepreneurs that we could enable. So we have a massive opportunity to unleash this entrepreneurs, uh, uh, this cohort of entrepreneurs that are literally working, you know, within half a mile of here. Well, it's interesting you say that because you're in an industry, aircraft leasing, which many would argue um, grew up over the last 30 years or so uh, from the seeds of GPA, which was set up by Tony Ryan down in Shannon. Uh, GPA became a player on, he definitely was thinking global. It became a significant player on the global stage. I know it didn't, he tried to go public, it didn't work out and uh, and GPA ended up uh, getting sold off. So it didn't, it didn't ultimately work out for Tony Ryan on that front. However, a lot of people came out of GPA, like yourself, um, who ended up uh, working in other parts of the aircraft leasing industry and doing it in Ireland. And most of the top aircraft leasing companies in the world are now based in Ireland, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so at the last count, I think nine of the top 10 are here. Um, by any metric, Ireland is the um, centre of excellence globally for aircraft leasing. And a lot of the top players are either run as in the CEO level or at the senior management by people who were either part of the original GPA um, fraternity or close links to that. Um, so, yeah, Ireland unquestionably now is the dominant player in the global aircraft leasing space, which is a massive business. And, you know, our, uh, Avalon itself, the business that I've been lucky enough to co-found and now run today, was a startup n- nine years ago, literally didn't exist nine years and two weeks ago. And today uh, it is a company with a balance sheet of nearly $30 billion. Um, it's running, run from Ireland uh, with a global team, but it's predominantly an Irish company happens to be owned by a Chinese entity today. We were public on the New York Stock Exchange a few years ago. So we've seen various ownership structures. But the point is, we're here, it's a scale business, and it's a global business. We're operating in maybe over 60 countries around the world. So this global ambition exists in Ireland in the aircraft leasing sector, but not necessarily in the tech sector, for example. Um, yeah, I think as a cultural piece, I mean, I, because at the end of the day, the aircraft leasing space, um, even though the numbers are big, it's still very niche. The number of people employed is quite small, uh, although our economic value add, I think, is pretty good. But it's niche at the end of the day. So I, I, what I'm after here with Project I is to create a culture, a mindset from, you know, 9, 10, 11 year olds that being your own boss, which is the simplest definition of an entrepreneur is a worthy ambition. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we, we've, over the last five years, run a program down in County Clare, uh, which is now called the Jessies, that I named after my father, who himself was an entrepreneur. He was a, a greengrocer. Um, and we're supporting, you know, entrepreneurship at the fifth class and sixth class level with the Dragon's Den and coming up with the business ideas. And the, the first... Uh, cohort of those kids who we started five years ago are now going into Leaving Cert 
and we've launched a, a scholarship program for them going to university next year if they're studying, uh, you know, innovation, business or whatever, um, or science or any, any, any faculty either, but to encourage that mindset of, of innovation. All right, now you come up with some recommendations under six headings, culture, education, early stage funding and support, acceleration, venture funding and growth and exit. Maybe just take up the education piece because um, you suggest that entrepreneurship should be included in school curriculum from an early age, presumably you mean uh, primary school, and that teaching basic skills and opening eyes to the opportunities for developing ideas will be a good thing. But something I always ask entrepreneurs, are they born, are they made? I, I mean, you know, a lot of successful people, people like Alan Sugar, let's say, in the UK, or Richard Branson uh, with Virgin, etc. These are, are people who, uh, to education, didn't really have a great education. Yeah. Um, they were self-made men uh, who went out into the world at a very early age with great ideas and terrific enthusiasm and passion and all of that and made huge successes to themselves. So I'm just wondering if entrepreneurship is something that really can be taught. Oh, I think it absolutely can. And, you know, uh, you mentioned Alan Sugar. You know, you go to the States and you could mention Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. These were all dropouts from university. But the reality is when you look at the facts and the stats, they are the outliers, okay? The vast majority of entrepreneurial endeavor or innovation, uh, particularly in the last 10 years, when we're talking about tech innovation, um, is ultimately derived through the commercialization of academic research in universities, principally PhD research. That's the holy grail, okay? Mm. And we compared and contrasted Israel and Ireland in this specific issue, um, how much money the Israeli government invests in in academic research, excluding military spending, because you have that, mm-hmm. you have that characteristic in Israel, so you exclude that. You compare and contrast that to Ireland. Countries of similar size, in terms of numbers of people, um, the Israeli government invests 10 times more than the Irish government as a percentage of GDP in third-level research and development. And put simply, that means you have more people doing more PhD, not just exclusively PhD, but high-level research. Um, And so therefore, you have a bigger pool of opportunities to commercialize those business ideas. Um, If you compare and contrast, say, Irish universities uh, and say how they do in this area, Trinity in, in here in Dublin is pretty good. It's the best of the of the breed in, in Ireland. Uh, but still, less than 10% of their PhD research is, is even considered for commercialization. If you go to Stanford University in the middle of Silicon Valley, which is considered the academic institution for this, the commercialization ratio is closer to 80%. So you've nearly eight hmm. times more uh, opportunities. And remember, for every 100 businesses you start, maybe one or two will work. Um, so you need to be putting a lot into the funnel to hope you've got success at the other end. So at its core on the education side, of course, primary school education and getting it on the curriculum is really important from an early age. But where the rubber hits the road is at third level. And we are way behind the eight ball in Ireland in that regard. Yeah, of course, and the universities had their funding cut, didn't they, post the recession? I mean, you know, the government will say, well, what were we to do? Um, Everyone had to face a cut. Yeah, and, um, you know, one can understand the logic of that, but we're now 10 years later and we're looking out, we're taking a 50-year vision from here. And and so there is an imperative in my mind to dramatically upscale um, uh, the amount of capital that the government applies into research and development. Mm. And not just that, the infrastructure around it, you know, because one of the other um, uh, recommendations is around acceleration. You know, what, what's acceleration? Well, at the end of the day, it's clustering like-minded people in a physical space. 
So you're having a cup of coffee with a venture capitalist, you have the entrepreneur. You, you, and, and what we've also found with entrepreneurs as part of this research is the entrepreneur, the very creative idea person, they're not always the right person to run a company. Okay, so what you need to do is match the classic entrepreneur with a, um, a a person who is more focused on systems, process and good management. But that person, whilst not necessarily an entrepreneur, might want to be in a startup. And so you, you encourage you encourage this mindset. And um, if you go to, say, compare Ireland with France, 10 years ago, France was very poor on any metric around innovation uh, uh, and entrepreneurship in general. Um, in the last five years, particularly since Macron came to power, the percentage of children or of, of kids coming out of university who want to be their own bosses, entrepreneurs, has jumped from nothing to nearly one in four graduates are now working in startup businesses. Mm. That happened in five years. Do we have a similar figure for Ireland? I don't have the number for Ireland off the top of my head, but I suspect that it's much lower. If you draw, say, a correlation between, as I said earlier, the, the academic research commercialization. Um, so it's got it's got to be much lower, but I don't have the statistic. Yeah, I was talking to some entrepreneurs recently. I was in amidst a group of entrepreneurs uh, recently, and they talked about Enterprise Ireland uh, funding, and none of them had sought Enterprise Ireland funding. In fact, they were quite dismissive of it, and um, they described it as uh, a dole for entrepreneurs. Um, and I know you've called, I'm not suggesting you're uh, describing it as such, but I know you're calling for some changes in the way EI and IDA and other state agencies operate and how they look at all that. But w- would you concur with their general uh, remark? So um, I would say that Enterprise Ireland plays a central role in providing funding to the startup uh, ecosystem in Ireland. It's one of the largest in Europe in terms of the amount of cash they put into the system. So the state's commitment through EI to fund startups is is actually undaunted. Where I have an issue is, are we getting value for money? So there is a school of thought which says, you know, EI spread too much money too wide and, and it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't move the needle. Maybe a better model would be, you know, a similar quantum of capital uh, and that that capital is focused on a much smaller mm. focused uh, set of industries. So again, back to Israel, they've identified five, five core industries of the future. So whether it's machine learning, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, so on and so forth, right? So maybe a bigger checks for a smaller number of higher quality candidates uh, might be a better approach. In, in the Project I uh, research piece, we've raised the idea of really, could we reimagine how we do this by the creation of a an agency that takes the best of, say, EI and the best of, of, of the IDA in terms of their thinking in this area and create an agency that is exclusively focused on um, the entrepreneurs of the future, where the skills that set within that those agencies are very driven by the needs of the entrepreneurs. One of the criticisms that you'll hear about EI is they're spread too thin. They've got, you know, they're just being pulled left, right and centre. And I think they'll admit that themselves. But one thing that's absolutely clear on EI, and I've met with the uh, with Judy Cinnamon and her team recently enough, their passion to try and get this right is clear and consistent. They are open to figuring out how they could do it better. And we've already started to work with them on one or two ideas out of Project I to help move the agenda forward. Mm-hmm. So commitment is there. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity just to maybe get a better bang for the buck. 
Now, you, you've also said that um, you've also made some recommendations around venture funding and um, that uh, you've talked about this uh, funds of funds mechanism. What do, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so again, um, venture capital funding, you know, clearly is uh, f- uh, having capital to allow these businesses to start up scale and there's various different technicalities. But in different countries around the world, um, you have different ways of funding um, uh, of funding startups. So you have the classic venture capitalist companies. So they have a pool of cash and they go fund startups. Um, I'm a believer. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. If your idea is good enough, you'll find a VC. So if you're sitting in in, in Ennis County Clare or Dublin, Ireland, you've got an amazing idea. Some guy in Silicon Valley is going to hear about it. Okay. So I don't buy that. We're in Ireland. We can't get access to capital piece. Um, the point about the fund of funds here was um, the current uh, rules and regulations around pension fund investing for people. It restricts the ability for, for, for me or you, if you have a self-directed fund, to say I want to put X percent of my pension, could be 1%, 5% into venture capital. Mm. It's really difficult to do it under the pension it's risky rules. though. Of course it's risky, mm. but you're not. it's very difficult to do it today. But if you look at the best jurisdictions in the world – where you've got the best metrics for startup innovation, the pension infrastructure in those countries allow people to do so it. So who's best in class you, at this? You don't have to do it. Um, the Europeans are very good. The Scandinavians are very good in this area. Um, you know, like Sweden in particular uh, is very strong. So you don't have to invest your pension. It's entirely up to yourself. It'll suit some people. It won't suit others. The issue today is it's really difficult to do it for anybody. And so even if you got 1% of pension funds allocated to venture capital, and then invested properly by professional capital investors, it could have a major impact on the ecosystem here in Ireland. Um, you've also talked about changes to tax arrangements um, and share option schemes in Ireland. And I know there's been a lot of criticism from the entrepreneurial community uh, about this and that we don't even match the UK, um, for example, in terms of capital gains and, and all of that. But again, we've just come out of a recession. A lot of people are kind of queasy about tax breaks for for people, especially if they're getting, you know, multi-million euro checks for selling businesses? Yeah, I think they're absolutely right. I think the day of the tax break, um, you know, the allowances, if you like, that's hard to swallow um, given, you know, the recent fiscal history for, mm. all, for all of us. Um, the issue here is not so much about tax breaks. It's about actually creating more tax revenue for the, for the government. And so the philosophy is, 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 is quite simple. If you... Um, create a capital gains tax rate for entrepreneurs that's attractive, then they'll want to, su- to, to, to run their business from here, scale them from here and sell them from here because the tax rate uh, will be attractive. Right now, the tax treatment for Irish-based entrepreneurs who take all that risk for many years before that check ever arrives is just simply not attractive. And if you compare and contrast, you mentioned the UK there, we're way, way, way off what the UK is. So in the last five, 10 years, you've seen a lot of Irish people head north to start their businesses. So we're losing all that revenue. So this is not about tax breaks. It's trying to stimulate and incentivize um, more tax revenue in Ireland through an efficient capital gains system for for entrepreneurs. And the good news is, because the government have been lobbied on this extensively by many stakeholders for many years, um, the good news is that they've, I, I think they've just recently completed a submission exercise to hear from the various stakeholders as to how they could and should, should do this better. But in my personal opinion, I think we're way behind uh, other major uh, economies of the world. Uh, and, and we're, and we're even talking major OECD economies. And the UK is a good one. So 
I, this isn't about tax, bre- tax breaks. It's about stimulate more tax revenue for the betterment of society and then more inve- more opportunity for the government to invest that capital in, you know, hopefully making Ireland a better place to live. Tell us about Station F. So Station F is, think about it, in a, it's this massive physical building in the middle of Paris that Macron envisioned uh, five or six years ago. It's built and today... Um, it houses uh, hundreds of startup companies. But not only that, they've got universities clustered with them. So they're merging the entrepreneur with the academic researcher. All the major venture capitalists in the world are coming through for meetings and presentations. And you, it's just a clustering of intellectual capital. And within that is an accelerator program, which is basically saying, Kieran, your idea is just not good enough, so forget it. Uh, John, your idea is amazing. We need to scale you a hundred times faster than everybody else. And it's it's as simple and as compl- complicated as that. But what we found is if you put a cluster of like-minded individuals together, you know, serious things can happen. And we have that cluster here, as I said right at the start, with all these internet companies literally based up the road. We just need to release them. And Trinity um, College has a vision to create an, uh, an inc- a world-class incubator, accelerator, Station F for Ireland, uh, up on Pierce Street. They have a very interesting strategic site up there. Uh, Paddy Prendergast, the provost, has a vision to build a billion-dollar, billion-euro um, uh, accelerator up there. I've seen the plans. It is brave. It's bold uh, in its vision. And I think it's a strategic imperative for the country. And how are they going to fund it? Well, that's the big issue, Karen. Mm. So it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to have to be funded through a combination of public and private. Uh, I don't think Trinity have the handout for all public coffers. I think the government will support it. They have to. And I think private enterprise has to go in there as well. Mm. Okay. Now, a lot of people will be listening to this and they'll be thinking, well, what's Avalon doing to help promote and foster entre- entrepreneurship? So uh, what is Avalon doing or what are you doing as an individual? Are you mentoring any young entrepreneurs, for example? Well, I suppose the reason we're here, Kieran, is I'm I, what I've done for the last six months is spent a quite a lot of time, money sure. and effort uh, uh, creating Project I. And Project I is available on our website. Um, you, anybody can download it. It's a 60-page document. That's the, that's the first and most important thing we've done, which is framing the, the issue and framing the opportunity. Um, at a personal level, as I said to you earlier, we've been supporting um, young entrepreneurs at the primary school level. Um, and this particular piece of work, now this Project I, is acting as a catalyst for deb- conversations like this, creating the awareness. But to actually make change happen is going to require, uh, at, at the pace that change needs to happen, lots of different stakeholders coming together and deeming entrepreneurship innovation to being a core strategic imperative for the country. So you produced the report. Um, I presume you sent it to government. What kind of reaction have you received? Yeah, so we... Um, we sent the report um, to all parts of government uh, and the various other parties. Uh, we sent it uh, through. Uh, we sent it to a lot of different stakeholders, uh, the various state agencies that are involved in this area. And I would have to say the response uh, has been muted enough at this point uh, from from government. Um, we have had a good and positive interaction with EI, as I mentioned. Um, and so they've taken uh, they've taken it quite seriously. IDA, 
Uh, no, we've had no uh, interaction with the IDA so far um, and no interaction from government so far. But that's not to say that people aren't thinking about it and considering it and trying to figure it out. Uh, I'm certainly not trying to position myself as the champion of entrepreneurship in Ireland. This was done to, to act as a catalyst, as a stimulant to get a debate going. And hopefully this podcast will, will help raise further awareness. The reaction, though, from the entrepreneur class, if you like, has been extraordinary. Uh, you know, people around the country uh, you know, building small companies from the, right through to successful entrepreneurs who've exited saying, good piece of work, um, you're spot on, you know, we got to move this agenda forward. So um, I, I think to really engage at a, at, a, at a sovereign, at a country level, we're going to need to get the government fully engaged into this as a core plank of Irish policy for the next 20, 30 years. And just in terms of those uh, entrepreneurs saying, you know, well done, good piece of work, uh, we're behind you, etc. Is there any chance of you coming together as a group, formalising this, maybe putting together a body to try and promote innovation or put some pressure, gentle pressure on the government perhaps to, to yeah, move? Could, could be. Uh, I had a conversation last week with um, the recently appointed um, Professor of Entrepreneurship at NUI Galway, who is suggesting exactly the same thing. Um, he has just spent the last 30 years um, based in Scotland as an academic and um, shared with me some of the work that he'd done in Scotland um, where a Project I type of initiative um, came on the scene about five or ten years ago uh, promoted by a Scottish entrepreneur called mm. Tom Hunter and he was uh, showing me how the various strands of, of key stakeholders came together to make, make change happen. So it's eminently doable. I'm just wondering how you sort of move this on, ensure that this just doesn't become another report that gets put in the shelf and gathers dust and in five or ten years' time somebody will come along and say, oh, well, that, some good ideas in there, but they were never implemented yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah, and there's been, some, there's been many reports over the years yeah. on, on this area um, and typically they get put on the shelf and no one does anything about it. Um, but I'm not running the government, uh, Karen. I'm running Avalon and I suppose at the end of the day, that's my, you know, priority to run run that company, and it, it absorbs a great deal of my time. But as an Irish person, a person who believes passionately in the country uh, and the future for the country, you know, I'm I'm up for whatever I can do to move the agenda forward. Sure. And do you invest in any startups yourself? Um, I spent a great deal of time, Kieran, uh, in the previous decade investing in startups um, in a multitude of different sectors. Claire Capital, the yeah, private equity. Yeah, yeah and uh, the big learning from that was I should just stick to investing in aircraft and airline leasing. <laughs> and after that, um, uh, it there hasn't been a successful strategy <laughs> right. for me. Okay. Listen, tell us about Avalon. How, how's the business performing at the minute? Um so we're we're in the we just celebrated our ninth birthday two weeks ago. Um, so startup May two thousand and ten. Uh, today we're the third largest aircraft leasing company in the world. Um, what that means is we have a balance sheet now that's close to thirty billion dollars. Um, we have nine hundred and fifty aircraft in our portfolio, either flying around the world or on order from the various manufacturers. Uh, we have a team of about 300 people spread across seven different offices around the world. Um, we've just moved into our new global headquarters uh, up the road where we've got 200 staff. Um, proud of the mix in that staff. So we're very much into culture and diversity and inclusion. So it's broadly a 50-50 mix um, in terms of gender. Uh, age is still very young and the, whole, the, the average age in Avalon is 33 um, multi-jurisdictions, lots of different people from all over the world working in the company. 
So um, it's been a joy for me and my co-founders over the last nine years to see it evolve from from just an idea to to what it is today. Uh, uh, not just a, a company that delivers strong financial ro- results for its shareholders, but a place, a fabulous place for people to work who really enjoy working there. And uh, it's been a great journey in that respect. Yeah. The best in my career. And just a couple of things. I mean, there are a couple of headwinds, aren't there? Climate change is one of them because um, aviation is very much uh, in the spotlight in terms of CO2 emissions. Ryanair um, today coming out and they're going to be producing this metric now uh, around their CO2 emissions. And they've kind of said that, you know, if there's going to be a carbon tax, okay, that's fine. Uh, we can, uh, you know, we can live with that, but it has to be fair and consistent with other yep. uh, other sectors and so forth. But how are you guys uh, dealing with it as owners of a lot of these uh, aircraft? Yeah. So at, at, at one end of the spectrum, um, uh, given that we operate in the aircraft leasing space and we own aircraft and aircraft are, you know, they emit um, bad things. Um, at the strategic level, our commitment is to own the youngest fleet of aircraft in the world, which means, relatively speaking, they've got the lowest emissions. But nevertheless, they still have emissions. So we have the youngest fleet of the top three lessors in the world. I'm going to try and maintain that particular metric. At the more practical level, um, we've got a quite a, an advanced um, uh, CSR agenda, corporate social responsibility that at Avalon we call CARE, C-A-R-E. And we're setting ourselves some pretty ambitious targets around being uh, emissions neutral in what we do uh, and doing that on a, on, a global, on a global basis. So unquestionably, um, environmental and social governance issues are to the fore. Um, there's no question in my mind that there will be a carbon tax for airlines, and rightly so. Uh, and Avalon is going to take a leadership role in making sure that we're at the forefront of that. And it's important not just um, uh, that we do that from a sort of makes me feel good. Our employees are demanding that. And, you know, we've got a lot of bright people coming up out of university saying, what's your agenda in this area? We only want to work in a company that has an appropriate you know, responsibility, focus mm. on making sure this is right. But how long before Avalon aircraft are being fueled uh, by something other than fossil fuels? I'd say it's some time. Uh, there's a lot of work going on with the different manufacturers on a variety of different scenarios. But as I look out and see the technology, I think it's probably 20 or 30 years away. Really? Still? Yeah. Right. Okay. Even though we seem to be on the cusp of an I'm, inflection point in cars, let's say. We are, yeah. But uh, remember, we could probably build an electric-powered airplane that will fly four or six people, right? Um, but to build an electric-powered airplane that can fly five or 600 people... Uh, is still way beyond the current technology and the capabilities just because the size of the batteries would be so big. So it's battery technology has to continue to advance. But saying that, you know, the major engine manufacturers, GE, Pratt, Rolls-Royce, have made strides in reducing the emissions of their engines, the fuel efficiency of the engines. So they're continuing to do all of the right things, and rightly so. And we're dem- as customers, we're demanding that. Um, but I think we're still two or three decades away from not having, you know, kerosene fuel aircraft, at least. Okay. And just finally, uh, just 737 MAX uh, with Boeing. Many of those in your portfolio? Yeah. So we have, um, we're a big customer of the MAX. We're one of the biggest in the world. Um, we have nine MAX aircraft that we've taken delivery of uh, to six different customers around the world. Obviously, they're all on the ground. Uh, we have a massive vested interest in making sure that Boeing get to the right answer. Um, we are in, as you can imagine, in very regular dialogue with Boeing, the various regulators around the world. 
um, on the the roadmap to getting those airplanes, as they call it, returned to service. It's not yet clear to me when that will be. It's not yet clear whether that will be one magic wand and they're all back in the air globally, or whether it'll be sequential. Um, you know, a, a, my sense, though, is Boeing will get this right. Uh, the fix is clear. Um, the regulators are working uh, very closely, and this will get fixed. The issue here is not so much about the technology of the airplanes. Mm-hmm. It's the hearts and minds of people, right? Will people want to get back on this airplane, um, given the history of two crashes? And... Um, I think that'll be that's that'll be the challenging question. Um, in the past, when aircraft types have had incidences, and they have for forty years, people have kind of forgotten about it after a period of time. They've just gotten back on the airplanes because they're more focused on cheap fares. That may well happen, um, but I'm not entirely convinced it will happen with the same speed uh, this time around. Okay. And has there been a financial hit for Avalon from having these aircraft grounded? Not or is re- it the customer who takes. Yeah, the risk? it's the customer who takes the risk, but. Um, this is more about, you know, looking out over the next five to ten years, um, you know. So now it's kind of irrelevant, um, given the nine aircraft the customers are still paying. Um, but if this was to go on for three or four years, then we wouldn't be taking delivery of any more 737 MAXs. So, you know, us and all of our aircraft leasing peers, the big ones, uh, our P&L growth will, will just drop off, dramat- uh, you know, accordingly. Um, and we'll have to figure out something else. But uh, for now, it's it's not... a for now, it's not a financial issue. It's more of a strategic issue. Right. Okay. Um, all right, Donald, we appreciate your time coming in to talk to us about uh, Project I. We wish you success. Hopefully, the government are listening. And who knows, maybe Pascal Donoghue in the, in the budget will announce uh, something uh, along the lines of what you've suggested across these uh, six headings. Donald Slattery, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kieran. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Donald Slattery and Peter Hamilton for their contributions. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon, a sound engineer. Let me remind you that you can get this podcast for free to download on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. And don't forget, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.